0: came out with
1: sets of numbers, and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news. Arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves.
0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 24th of October 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, we have a climate crisis on our hands. See what you can do to help. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. Today our featured guest is Dr. Jim Palfreyman, who is an astrophysicist, data analyst and positioned as a casual researcher in astrophysics at the University of Tasmania. In this special episode, you'll hear about how his amazing research into the Vela Pulsar has led to a new understanding of the internal structure of pulsars. And then we'll welcome Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave for our regular observational and astrophotography session, What's Up Doc? And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News Highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. So let's zoom down now to the University of Tasmania to speak with Jim. Hello Jim. G'day Brendan. I was lucky enough to read an exciting paper in Nature about Pulsar glitches. And I did some follow up, and so now we're very fortunate to be speaking with the first author, Dr. Jim Pulframan, who has been using radio telescopes to probe the inner workings of pulsars, the bright Vela pulsar in particular. Thanks for speaking with us, Jim.
2: An absolute pleasure.
0: Okay, so before we talk about how you found this pulsar glitch and what it means to research, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Jim, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place?
2: I grew up in Hobart in Tasmania, and i born and bred here, and I was always interested in the, the sciences, but the astronomy came along because my dad, when I was in about... Grade three, I think it was, he bought a telescope. It was a kit, and so you had to sort of assemble it together. It was a Newtonian reflector. Yep. And he set it all up, and the first thing he pointed it at happened to be Saturn. He didn't even know it was Saturn. And he picked me up, and I looked through the eyepiece and saw Saturn for the first time. And it was just uh, one of those special moments. And I always, you know, I found myself, you know, being good at maths and computer science and stuff like that and physics. But the astronomy side of things that always interested me. So I had a completely, uh, an education just in the state system completely. And I uh, went through to university, but I had to work hard at my mathematics and physics, but the computer science came very naturally. And so that was the field I was heading for, if you like. And it was only decades later that I really came back and picked up the astronomy. Okay. Well, look. Maybe tell us a little bit about
0: your early ambitions and how those ambitions might have changed.
2: So I had kids young, and so I needed to get food on the table and pay the mortgage, and so it was all about getting a job. I was good at computer science. Actually, interesting, in the end of second year, and I was making a decision about what subjects I was going to do in third year, and I could have taken the easy path and done mainly computer science ones. But I chose, and it turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made, I chose to do a double major, a degree in computer science and a degree in mathematics. So I had to work hard at that, but I got it. And uh, then went on and did honours in computer science and then (laughs) became a father and went off and did a 30-year career in computer science. It was good and I worked for some really great companies and people. But uh, the career in IT, I sort of found myself being more of a project manager rather than cutting code which is what I really enjoyed. And and to be honest, a project manager is really just a diary manager with a whip. And so I wanted something a bit more stimulating. And I was in my holidays. I'd taken a couple of weeks off and I you know, wandered down to the university, wandered back into maths and physics and found myself in the office of Professor John Dickey and not knowing what I wanted to do, but I wanted to do something. And he said, well, what interests you? And I said, well... I've always been interested in accurate clocks, which is true. I've always loved digital watches and atomic time and that sort of stuff. It always fascinated me right from being a kid. Anyway, so I said I'm oh, interested in accurate clocks, and he goes, ah, oh, you need to study pulsars, walk this way. Yeah. <laughs> and he introduced me to Dr. Aidan Houghton, who was working down at the university at the time, and next thing I was studying pulsars. It turned out to be, you know, John's his insight into, you know, what makes a, a good topic to research it's got to be it's very important that it's something you're interested in and uh and he made that connection in a heartbeat and uh, it was just uh, absolutely fantastic and uh, I kicked off a masters a part-time masters at that time while maintaining my full-time job and I did that for 5 years and got my masters and then what happened uh 6 months after I finished my masters I was retrenched and so I took the money, and I went back to university and enrolled in a PhD. And uh, yeah, and so I graduated last year. So I had a lot of exciting stuff happen in the meantime. Fantastic.
0: What a great journey. Okay, let, let's zoom in now on your PhD. Your thesis was a long-term single pulse study of the Vela Pulsar, and you used data from the University of Tasmania's 26-metre telescope at Mount Pleasant near Hobart, and the 30-metre telescope out at Ceduna on the eastern edge of 200,000 square kilometres of the Nullarbor Plain. Now, first of all, selecting your data, the Ceduna dish is bigger. It's in a much quieter RFI zone, so Why use the Vila dish at Mount
2: Pleasant at all? So, very good question. And yes, the RFI is a continual battle that we fight in radio astronomy, and the RFI at Ceduna is beautiful. It's just flat-lined. It's just fantastic.
1: Yep.
2: But the one major thing, yes, the Ceduna dish is 30 metres. The Mount Pleasant radio telescope is 26 metres. The massive difference between the two is that the Mount Pleasant receivers are cooled. So we cool the receivers down to 20 Kelvin, 20 degrees above absolute zero, yep. and that increases the sensitivity by about three times. So even though Sejuna is bigger, because it's not cooled, and cooled, cooled receivers require maintenance, and you've got to have people there almost every day, whereas the Sejuna telescopes, there's no one there permanently. I mean, we've got Bev who you know, drives in and does you know repairs and maintenance for us. And she was actually even mentioned on the ABC Backroads program, which is worth looking up if you want to see a bit about her and Sejuna. But I digress. So what I was doing was observing with both telescopes. And the other problem with Sejuna is getting the data back. We don't have a connection there of any decent, yep. you know, no fiber or anything. And so the only way to get data back is to ship disks back. So it's incredibly difficult to get good quality data back. So what I did was I recorded there and threw the data away until something interesting happened. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So,
0: look, for many of our listeners, they've loved our previous Pulsar episodes that we've done on Pulsars and cryogenics, but for new listeners, can you give us a reminder
2: of what Pulsars are, please, Jim? Sure. So. Imagine at the end of a star's life, you've got, depending on the size of the star, essentially, you've got one of three things can happen. If it's a smallish star like our Sun, it'll just fade away like a fire going out. Pretty boring, really. But if the star is large enough to go supernova, we get this massive explosion where a lot of the heavier elements are made. And then what remains, what's left over after the explosion, again, depending on the size of the star, you can have two options. If the star is very large, the remains will collapse down into an object which has an escape velocity greater than the speed of light and which means that light itself cannot even escape the object and so we have a black hole. Yep. The Disappointing thing about black holes is we can't really see what's going on inside them. Uh, we can see them, um, but we can't see what's going on inside them. But if we get this Goldilocks-sized star that's big enough to go supernova, but then the remains are not heavy enough to form a black hole, we, we get this object called a neutron star. And the way I describe it when I'm giving my tours and so on is, you know, the gravity is so strong that it forces the electrons into the nucleus of the atoms and the electrons combine with the protons to form neutrons. And so you basically get this, you know, sea of neutrons. It has a hard crust on the outside and most likely a superfluid core in the middle. And, and as you go further down into the core, we, we don't really know what's down in there but if you can picture it as a superfluid core with an outer hard crust, uh, and it gets better. These objects spin, spin very fast. They probably rotate when they're first born around 50 or 60 times per second, and then they gradually slow down. Uh, You can get pulsars that spin faster than that, uh, millisecond pulsars, but they're usually formed in a binary system, and they strip matter off their companion star, and that speeds them up. But a normal pulsar on its own will slow down And it still gets better. They're also a massive magnet, three trillion times the magnetic field of what we're standing in right now of the Earth. And that magnetic field out of the north and south pole of that magnet uh, spews electromagnetic radiation, gamma rays, X-rays, but most importantly for me, radio waves. And light as well. But radio waves uh, in particular, and, and if that beam as it's rotating happens to sweep over Earth, we get a brief pulse on each rotation of the pulsar. And that's why it's called a pulsar. So that's, in essence, what a pulsar is.
0: Fantastic. Okay, so that's the background. So let's do science and go right into your PhD now. A long-term, single-pulse study of the Vela pulsar. You've explained how you got your data and what pulsars are. Could you tell us now what glitches are and how you studied them And in your thesis itself,
2: what did you conclude? Okay, so very soon after pulsars were discovered by Jocelyn bell Burnell, who I had the pleasure of meeting just a few months ago. Wow. She came to Hobart and gave a talk. And anyway, she discovered pulsars, and very soon after she discovered them, everyone went looking for them. And the Vela Pulsar was discovered at Melonglove Observatory here in Australia in late 68 I believe yep. and it turns out to be the, the brightest pulsar in the sky and the second closest that we know of at the moment and so they observed this pulsar for a little bit and after a few months they just observed it for a short time each day. Now pulsars gradually slow down as they're spinning and they observed the Vela pulsar one day and found that it was actually spinning faster than it was the day before. And that was extremely puzzling, and uh, they—it was labelled. It was given the name "glitch." I did a little bit of research in that where that came from, and it came back to Martin Rees, or Lord Rees as he is now, was the, the first person to use the word "glitch." Uh, I actually emailed him to clarify if, if he did invent the term. He didn't think he did invent the term, but I certainly couldn't find anything else. So, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he did—he was the first person to publish it. Cool. And, Anyway, so hence we began looking for these glitches. You know, so you discover a pulsar and a few months later it glitches. Probability says it's going to be not a rare event. And so they kept looking at it, looking at it, and then it glitched again three years later, approximately. So a glitch is a sudden speed up. But the problem was we'd never observed a glitch in action. No one had observed it with a telescope large enough to see individual pulses. Yep. And Some researchers at the University of Tasmania a number of years ago did observe Vela glitch, but only with our 14-metre telescope, and they couldn't see the individual pulses. They learned some interesting information, but we really needed to try and catch it with a decent-sized telescope. And the problem is you can't predict glitches. All you can do is point a telescope and just wait for it to happen. Now, that's pretty hard to do on a big telescope like Parks or something like that. You can't get that sort of telescope time. But here at the University of Tasmania, we do have the advantage of having multiple radio telescopes, the 26 meter at Mount Pleasant near Hobart and the 30 meter at Seduna. And we can get time on these telescopes. And so I set out when I did my PhD to catch the next glitch. And uh, so I was observing 19 hours a day, pretty much every day. When other people wanted to use my telescope, <laughs> I, I would let them graciously use it for a short bit. But uh, I found that as the glitch approached, People were very generous and, you know, always giving me the time and saying, yeah, don't worry, I'll. you can have a gym. And, and I, I later found out that no one wanted to be that person who, who was observing if the glitch happened and I didn't catch it. So everyone sort of, <laughs> the, you know, the seas parted to let me observe. And, uh, yeah, That's 1.30 it. p.m. I was sort of roughly heading towards bed and my mobile phone goes off and saying that Villa had glitched. And I thought it was a bit of RFI because that sometimes happened. I used to get the odd false alarm once a month or so. But I went and checked and uh, no, the glitch had happened and I had caught it. And I didn't actually go to bed that night. I stayed up looking at the data and found some absolutely fascinating things. So what happened exactly when that glitch occurred? So one of the most interesting things that happened was the pulsar stopped pulsing. So... The glitch happened and there was no pulse. One of the pulses just was flatlined. And that's called a null. Now, nulls do happen, but they, they happen with older pulsars. is a young pulsar, only 10,000 or so years old. So it's not something you would expect. And I actually did go looking in all the data I had, and I've got a, an awful amount of data you know, measured in the petabytes, yep. and looking for pulse nulls and couldn't find any. So. It was, you know, it was obviously something odd. To make a pulse not happen would mean that the magnetic field, this massive magnetic field, would need to be altered in some way. It's possible the pulse was redirected, so it went went over our heads, so to speak. It could have also been just an extremely wide pulse um, because the a couple of the other pulses after the null pulse were also wide. So um, maybe it was a super wide pulse quite strange activity and it was you know, really interesting to report it and that's that's why I got into nature because it was I mean I, nature have always sort of reported pulsar discoveries they, that's where they the, the glitches were first published so nature had a history with pulsar so I I had a I sort of hope that they would uh, be interested and in then unfortunately enough they were. That's fabulous I'm going
0: to ask you a bit more about that nature paper but first you wrote in your thesis I'd like to thank Ogilvy High School student Scarlett Marston for asking such a fantastic question at one of my school visits when I was explaining how glitches work. What's the backstory there, Jim?
2: Okay, so the backstory here is first of all, the way a glitch is hypothesized is that the superfluid core rotates at a different speed than the outer crust of the pulsar, and they, t- they, t- they rotate independently. And it's the outer crust that's slowing down. And then after about three years, the difference between those two rotations gets too big. And the the inner core grabs the outer crust and speeds it up. And that's the hypothesis. Now, so I was invited to the school to give a talk to the grade 10 science students. And I read something on the internet. We all know the internet's always correct. And the the thing (laughs) I read was, you don't understand, this is a quote by Albert Einstein, you don't understand your research unless you can explain it to your grandmother. Assuming your grandmother's not an astrophysicist. Yep. And i always liked it. I mean, whether Einstein said it or not, I don't know. But I've always I liked that quote, is that if you can explain something, a complex topic to somebody who has no, no knowledge in the field, then it actually helps your own understanding. And so when I was invited to give a talk at the school, I just published a paper in the Astrophysical Journal, This is prior to the glitch and decided I was going to attempt to explain that paper to the grade 10s. And so I was dissecting it and explaining everything and talking about glitches, and I hadn't actually caught the glitch at this stage, but the glitch was approaching, and I was explaining how glitches work.
0: Yep.
2: And Scarlett, says, this question came up from this girl at the back, and, and she said, could the change in rotation be the superfluid solidifying at the boundary? Wow. Of, between the core and the crust? Yep. And it was like... Uh, I just paused and I thought, gee, that's a really, really good question. I I didn't know the answer. And I I paused at that and thanked her for the question. And then it it puzzled me. And I thought, wow, I wonder if that could happen. So I I sent a few emails off to a few theoretical physicists around the place and got that comment saying, wow, that's a really good question. We need to sort of investigate this more. And it's still being investigated. But the great thing was Scarlett was just I went up, I said, I wanted to find out who this person was and who asked the question. And, and I wanted to talk to her a bit more and find out whether she was interested in continuing on field or doing science or whatever. And um, we've remained in contact, actually. She's at university now, but it was just a, a really, really good question. And I, I actually put it in my thesis. So it was be formally written down that if ever that sort of comes up down the track, it was just Formally in a thesis somewhere, so that she'd get the recognition for the good question.
0: It was a lovely thing to read, too. A, a genuine case of glitches being a good thing. And it doesn't stop yeah. there. I discovered your thesis work, and as you'd explain, it was taken up in a collaboration with some other great astrophysicists and ended up in that Nature paper. Can you tell us how that collaboration discovered a new understanding? of the interior structure of pulsars. What do we know now about those layers within a
2: pulsar? So when I did the initial nature paper, I made my data available and some theoreticians contacted me and said, can we have some more, more of your data because we'd like to look at it a bit more closely. And so they took my timing data and, and, and it ended up being another nature paper you know I wasn't first author this time, but you know it's two nature papers within a year is pretty good and yeah, it was what they found was absolutely fascinating, and they took a different approach than what i did i I just wanted to get mine out there because it was interesting and but they they spent a bit more time diving in and what they found was that prior to the speed up, there was a brief slowdown our uh, first, so what they saw was the pulsar was spinning at a certain frequency uh, which is about 11 times a second for for vela and then there was a brief slowdown and then there was a speed up and then there was an overshoot and then there was a slight slowdown and then it leveled off at the new frequency and uh, the overshoot was had been seen before but not the not the slowdown prior which is quite puzzling but what it sort of might mean is that there are one of the co-authors vanessa graver she um has sort of predicted that there might be not just two layers in there, but three layers. And so you've got three different layers in there spinning differently and separately. And that's what causes these undershoots and overshoots, whereas the whole thing will sort of connects up. Still work in progress here because the 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 slowdown is, is a real puzzle. We we actually don't know the, the cause of that, definitely. So there yeah, more work to be done.
0: That's awesome, and what a beautiful example of how science works. Now, for those who want to read the Nature paper, it's fantastic. You can find it at tinyurlcom forward slash pulsarglitch, all lowercase, all one word, and I'll repeat that at the end of this interview too for people. Now, that would have been a great boost to your post-PhD research goals,
2: Jim. What are you working on right now? So I'm continuing my research. I'm I'm collecting more data. I've got an idea, and I, I can't tell you, <laughs> I've got an idea as a method of predicting a glitch. To demonstrate it, I'm going to have to collect data right up to the next glitch. Oh, and by the way, the next glitch already happened. It, you know, <laughs> Three years on from 2016, you'd think it'd be a, about to sort of coming up now, but it caught us all snoozing. Well, almost all of us snoozing. It happened back in January, and yeah, everyone missed it. Well, all the professionals did, but the, an amateur got it. But that's another story, which I think you should follow up. Yep. Good interview there. And I can give you the details on that. But so, yeah, what I want to do is gather more data leading up to the next glitch, hopefully catch the next glitch as well, but see if I can predict it because I have an idea. But, you know, I've got to see if it works before I uh, can um, publish it. But I've got to basically gather and stack more data before I can test it.
0: Fantastic. That's awesome. Now, the other thing, of course, is the data analysis itself. Reading your work, it seems that working with radio telescopes data from various instruments can involve painstaking and sometimes tedious work. Can you tell us, firstly, how some of the workload is shared in your collaborations? And secondly, what are your main tools that you use to analyse those mountains of data?
2: Yeah, so fortunately we've had some dish drive technology in the last decade or so has revolutionised radio astronomy and it's enabled us to collect more and more data and keep and process more and more data. Yeah, so I had available 12 machines with 8 cores, so it's 96 cores. When I collect a day's worth of data, 19 hours, that would be four terabytes. Yep. Six hundred and forty megabytes every ten seconds. Each each ten second file was was that size. And then I'd have to process that or fold it using a program called DSPSR. Yep. And
0: that
2: produced a sort of a file that it was folded at the frequency of the pulsar. And and that's then a file that's reduced down to a hundred megabytes. And then you can analyze it using software. Called PS Archive, mm-hmm. yep. which is uh, it's freely available. Anyone can download it and install it. So in a way, I'm sort of standing on the shoulders of giants by people who you know built the receivers and built the telescope and wrote the software, and then I've added my bits too. And and uh, but the you know the bit that I did was was you know collect and process this mammoth. You know ultimately it was about three petabytes worth of data. But I had these twelve machines with eight cores, ninety six cores. At that rate, I could almost process in real time. Not quite. I mean, these machines are, by now today standards, fairly old. But I'm moving now towards sort of a computing cluster where I can, you know, throw hundreds of cores uh, in a in a virtual machine. I'm and sort of I'm moving my processing off those machines now. But um, yeah, so that's the that's the way. It's just brute brute force. And then once you've got the data, you've got to try and Find the interesting bits. I mean, when a glitch happens, that's really obvious, but I'm also looking for other interesting things as well. And yes, sometimes your good old eyeball is just great at picking out things. So I like, I'm a big fan of just eyeballing plots and looking for weird things. And then when I found something that looks a bit odd and I know what it looks like, I can then write something to go and search for that thing and see if any more of those happen. So it's a very, very slow and tedious process sometimes, but it can be very, very rewarding. It
0: sounds like it. That's fantastic. Now, we've heard about some of the outreach you've done on radio and in schools, for example, inspiring secondary students like Scarlett. I went and found her on the internet and she set astrophysics as a career goal. I know she's doing nursing in the the short term. What other outreach do you do and what are the challenges and why do you do outreach, Jim?
2: It's a really good question. I enjoy it. I enjoy going to schools and giving talks. I've been doing that for many years. I do tours at the radio telescope here. We have a museum attached to the radio telescope, the grote Reba Museum. Groat Reber built the first radio telescope yep. and he lived in Tasmania for a while. So we, we do public tours and schools come along and I like the idea of explaining complex research and topics to people and and kids and, and when they get the, the glint in their eye if, if you know if I if one person goes on and and does a science degree then you know I consider it, it, it a success and you know I, I really encourage students to study mathematics I think that's the well not I think it is the key subject to study if you want to do anything um, in the sciences And and when you get out into the real world there's not many people who who are good at mathematics. It turns out, you know, it's uh, so it is a good skill to have in the workforce, uh, to be that person, that go-to person when someone's got a maths question. So, um, but yes, yeah, so I it's it's all about getting more people into the STEM subjects and getting people excited about it because it can be extremely rewarding. But you've got to do that hard study, that undergraduate work first, and that is hard. I'm not going to deny that but it's uh, very rewarding later on in life. And I, I did my PhD much later in life and uh, as, a, as a mature age student, and I just had an absolute ball, and I'd just like to share my enthusiasm as well. And it sounds like you're still having a ball. We should also mention
0: some mentoring you've done with an amateur radio astronomer up in Sydney who I've been in contact with, Steve Olney, and I'm hoping to interview him soon because we're certainly seeing how citizen scientists and amateur astronomers are now making significant contributions to scientific research. For example, recently we had Gennady Borisov, an amateur astronomer from the Crimea region, using home-built instruments to detect and identify the first interstellar comet ever discovered. So, can you tell us how you've supported Steve in his amateur radio astronomy work and in particular, with regard to the 2019 glitch.
2: Sure. It was, uh, I get emails regularly. A lot of them spam. But, um, <laughs> you know, Professor Polferman come and talk at this uh, conference in you know, the middle of China or something like that. And you, know, you get very jaded. Yep. Uh, every researcher knows exactly what I'm talking about with these sort of things. But you get very jaded. But I got this email. And it was from Steve, and all he was asking was for some timings, you know, a pulsar ephemeris for the Vela pulsar, because yep. he said he would built his own telescope to observe it. And I sort of, I didn't quite believe that at first, because it's, you know, here's Iron playing with a 26 meter dish, and I was thinking, how could you do that in your own backyard? But emailing backwards and forwards, I got to appreciate that Steve knew what he was doing, and because he couldn't see individual pulses or anything like that, he. The way he's set up is he waits for Vela to pass overhead and uh, so he gets an hour's observing in each day. He needed to know the, the, t- the timing of the rotation of Vela so that he could fold his pulses and then hopefully see it. Now, yep. seeing a, a pulsar is you know, one of the key goals of serious amateur ham radio people and not many people have done it in the world. You know, it's a handful right across the world have ever observed a pulsar. So he's in, he's in really good company. Yep. Anyway, so he kept sending me what he'd seen and, and, he, and he obviously had, had seen the, the Vila Pulsar and he's got himself a nice little website and everything. But the funny thing was he, he knew all about the glitches and it seemed like every other week I'd, I'd get an email from him saying, has Vela glitched? And you know, <laughs> it became a bit of boy who's cried wolf and I thought, oh, no, not again. And, and of course it happened, it was RFI or something else that he'd seen. Anyway, so one morning I woke up and this was a bit after Christmas, and I got an email from Steve saying that, oh, has Vila glitched? And I thought, oh, uh, not again. And, and then half an hour later, I got an email from John Sarkisian from Parks yep. saying, has Vila glitched? And I thought, ooh, you know, that's uh, yeah, coincidences. Uh, yeah, when you have a coincidence in science, that's yeah, something to investigate. Yep. And um, getting those two emails within half an hour of each other, and at the point when I got it, Vela was down. So I had to wait. For Vela to rise and I grabbed the 26 meter and as soon as Vela rose observed it and yes it had glitched and so I could confirm it and so we put out an astronomer's telegram and Steve was on that and but it turned out that when Vela had glitched it was as it was passing over Steve's observatory so he technically observed the glitch happen and you could actually see it in his data Wow! Now, he, he couldn't see individual pulses unfortunately but he was the only person in the world to see the, the glitch because all the rest of us were snoozing. It was Christmas time and um, or a bit after, and and yeah, we weren't expecting it for another year. So that's his little story. But uh, I I hope you do interview him because I think it's it's very interesting. And so yes, so Steve actually when um, Jocelyn Bell Burnell came down, uh, Steve flew down to to meet her as well. So that was uh, that was really good. And I got to speak to Steve for the first time on radio. So I did a radio interview and convinced him to ring in, and we, we met for the first time and told the story on local radio here. And then I got to meet him for the first time when he came down to come and see Jocelyn. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good story, and we, we obviously stay in touch regularly.
0: Fantastic. So, continuing on our outreach theme, your observations and your data analysis has been taken by theoretical astrophysicists to construct that clearer understanding of the interior of complex stars like pulsars, for anyone considering a career in professional astrophysics, do you decide on being an observational astrophysicist or a theoretical one? Can you be both effectively? I hope that's not a naive or
2: insulting question, Jim. No, definitely not. They're two different camps. I suppose you could be both. You know, one tends to get their hands dirty, you know, go out there and you know sort of use a radio telescope a theoretician might not ever go anywhere near a radio telescope uh you could certainly have someone who does both bang theory sheldon cooper is the uh the ultimate theoretician but you would know by the time you got there it's not something you necessarily uh aim for i'd say i'd say you know just do your undergraduate, do your mathematics, and if the idea of going out to a telescope and observing and collecting data appeals, then you know that's what you do. But of course, when even though you do that, you, you've got to still get in and do some of the theoretical stuff as well. You've got to get your head around the internal workings of neutron stars. So, but the theoreticians—that's all they do. They and they try and come up with models to fit the data. And it's great when the two camps get together and have discussions and so on and come up with ideas and brainstorm and whatever, that's when, that's when things get really, really interesting. So, you know, if someone wasn't sure, I'd say just hang on, you'll work it out when you get there.
0: Exactly. Okay. Thanks, Jim. Now, the mic's all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or Science career paths, or your own passion for research, or our quest for new knowledge—the mic's all yours. Go for it, Jim.
2: Interesting, yeah. It's um, it's the as a I think if you ask me, what frustrates me, you know, more than anything is anti-vaxxers. I suppose would be very high on my <laughs> agenda of uh, yeah, anti-science. The flat earthers I find quite amusing, and. You know, because the interesting thing is if the Earth was flat, my pulsar signals, you know, if the the radio telescope was 50 metres away, if I had its position 50 metres in error, that would show up in my data. I would not be able to fold the pulses correctly. And so the idea that the Earth is flat is just so ludicrous. And I, you know, I, I prove it and demonstrate every time I observe a pulsar. But the fact that these groups exist, it can be very frustrating, actually, sometimes because as as a scientist, it's just so obvious some of these things. And okay, the flat earthers are pretty harmless; they're not going to you know do much damage. But when it comes to things like our anti-vaccine and and climate change denial, it's you know there's a very very real issues here. And I sort of feel that us scientists have we've done what we've we've done the best. We've done our job. We've done our bit. We've told the world the way things are. And it's up to you now to you know politicians and Public to sort that out. So yeah, that's that's my, my comment.
0: Fantastic! Yeah, it's yeah. Science is about understanding, not on a belief system. So, what else should we watch out for in the near future, Jim? What are you keeping
2: your eye on? I'm really fascinated by is fast radio bursts. Oh yeah, these things uh, first appeared when I started my studies. And at first we sort of dismissed them as, oh, yes, it'll just be some RFI or something like that. But it's not turned out to be like that. It's turned out to be something absolutely genuine and fascinating. And and I'll give you you briefly, basically, Duncan Lorimer found a pulse, just one random pulse in some archive data somewhere, just out of nowhere. And when you uh, analyse that pulse, um, because... You must remember, as these pulses arrive from traveling a great distance, they are passing through it's not a perfect vacuum they pass through some, you know, so some small number of electrons are in between us and, and where these pulses arrive. And So, so what that means is that uh, as they travel through the interstellar medium, the higher frequencies arrive before the lower frequencies. And when we observe a pulse arrive and we see that dispersion, we can measure we can get an idea of how far away these objects are and if it was local RFI the frequencies would all arrive at the same time because they haven't traveled very far but if it's come from a long way away then the higher frequencies arrive before the lower ones and what we see with these fast radio bursts is they've come from huge distances and what that means is for them to be as bright as they are now as we see them their source must be incredibly bright yep and there's You know, great discussion as to what the cause is. And it's made more interesting by we found a couple of ones that repeat, which is great because we know that they're there and we can look at them. So it's not a cataclysmic event like colliding neutron stars or anything, but some could be, but it might not be. It could be super bright pulses from a pulsar or a magnetar, could be, but even that, that doesn't quite stack up. They need to be so much brighter than what we've observed with all our current pulsars. So, yeah, fast radio bursts, keep an eye on those.
0: Yeah, and that question of what could send 80 years' worth of the sun's output in energy in such a short amount of time, it's a great question. So, well, thank you so much, Dr. Jim Pofferman. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you especially for your time and your busy schedule and we'll encourage all listeners to check out the Nature paper at tinyoil.com forward slash pulsar glitch or lowercase or one word and you can also follow the news on pulsars and magnetars and FRBs on Astrophys and thanks to researchers like Jim the work is going to lead to some very interesting and unexpected understandings of our cosmos. Congratulations and thanks, Jim. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Good on you. Cheers, mate. See ya. Bye-bye. That's great. Let's cross over to Adelaide now to speak with Dr Ian astroblog Musgrove. <whistles> now about... Two minutes into Ian's section, you'll notice that the sound quality changes markedly. That's because I forgot to turn on the good speakers, so I apologise for the glitch. Hello, Brandon. Hello Ian, how are you doing, mate? I'm not Lincoln at
1: all. How's it
0: very good. We just had a look out the window at our place and Venus is looking beautiful over in the western skies. I know.
1: I've just come back inside from having a look myself. And it's looking really, really brilliant.
0: Looking fantastic. Okay, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Okay. Over the next two weeks,
1: we're going to be treated sort of very, very nice sky appearance. If you've been following Venus and Mercury over the past few weeks, you'll be noticing Venus is climbing out of the twilight globe quite nicely and is now readily visible shortly after sunset. And Mercury is climbing higher and higher. The pair will climb uh, higher still over this coming fortnight. But you'll also notice that Mercury will, uh, after a little while, start to come closer to Venus. As Venus uh, climbs higher, Mercury stops climbing, and in fact, the pair will be closest on the 30th of October. So that will be a very nice meeting in the silo. In the, uh, Again, very easy to see; both are quite bright at the moment. And the pair will be joined by the crescent moon. So on the 29th, the thin crescent moon lines up with Mercury and Venus, making a, a beautiful display might need to watch it and start looking a little bit earlier so that the moon is above the horizon. But both Mercury and Venus are easily seen an hour after sunset with Mercury itself to be seen up to an hour and a half after sunset. So you don't have to wait. You should catch them just immediately after sunset. But if you're around a half an hour after sunset to an hour after sunset, they are really nice. On the pre-night, you'll see the, oh, it's not the nice lineup. Then on the thirtieth, the moon forms a triangle with Venus and Mercury. And then on the thirty-first, the moon is close to Jupiter. Now, I should also say that at this moment, you've got four bright planets easily visible in the western, up of the western horizon. So, if you wait until about an hour after sunset, you can see Venus, Mercury. Jupiter, Saturn, all lined up along with Bright Antares, the brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius. Beautiful. A truly beautiful sight in the sky. And of course, at the end of this, starting on the 29th, you have the moon joining this climb in the ladder of the planets, which will make it a truly exquisite sight. Now, to top it off, on the 2nd of November, the present moon and Saturn come very close. Now we won't see an occultation in Australia, but most of us will see the moon close enough to um, Saturn to be uh, spectacularly close to the eye and in fact less than half a finger width apart, which will be easily visible to get a an binoculars and also easily visible in wide field telescope eyepieces. So if you have a wide field uh, telescope eyepiece or any even a small telescope you'll be able to fit Venus and the edge of the moon in together, so sorry, sorry Saturn and the edge of the moon together, which will make quite a nice little view. And again, even with smartphones, with camera phones, you'll be able to take a photograph of the two together looking very nice indeed. And because the moon won't be very bright, it'll be easier to get uh, Saturn uh, without it being uh, overpowered by the guidance of the moon. So that's something to look forward to quite a bit. Uh, coming back to the 31st, when uh, Jupiter is close to the moon, they're going to be, I'm uh, not close enough to see in a uh, telescope like this, but they'll be close enough to see in uh, binoculars, and you might want to watch the uh, moons of Jupiter at the same time. Sadly, the window of our telescopic observation for Jupiter is narrowing. It's sitting around at 10 o'clock local time, and with uh, twilight finishing about 8 o'clock, you've only got about an hour worth of time to get your telescope onto it before the atmosphere interferes too much with seeing. Now, having said that, there's still lots of of other things to see. On the 24th, the variable star mirror uh, will be at its brightest. Now, a mirror is a pulsating uh, red giant and approximately every year it brightens up to magnitude 2, which is about as uh, bright as... Uh, gamma Cruces. Wow. The third uh, brightest star in constellation of the Southern Cross. And if you watch over the coming weeks, it'll start to fade. So you can see it go from being bright enough to see with the unaided eye to vanishing. Very good. So if it, do- it doesn't uh, finish there. Um, we also have the asteroid Vesta becoming bright enough to see in uh, binoculars. It's actually bright enough to see in binoculars right now. But it's going to brighten up uh, very nicely. Sometimes Vesta, because because of the way Earth's uh, orbit and Vesta's orbit uh, are aligned, it can be bright enough to see with the unaided eye. This year, Vesta is just under unaided eye visibility, but easily picked up in binoculars. So it's well worth having a look. At the moment, Vesta is just about in the constellation of Taurus, and it will be easily visible. You'll have a fairly good signpost in the in the constellation of Taurus itself. I'll be putting together some star charts for best spotting uh, fairly shortly, so it will be uh, quite easy to pick it up. Uh, as I said, it's just above uh, Taurus. You're going to have to wait till a bit later in the night to see it. It doesn't rise until something like 10 o'clock. About 11 o'clock at night local time you should be able to pick it up uh, reasonably well
0: Fantastic Ian, so step out and check out Vesta as well as all the planets. Do you
1: have a tangent for
0: us for this episode Ian?
1: Um, yes I do um, you, uh, Our listeners might be interested in what's ha- been happening with our interstellar cometary visitor to the high slash 2019 Q4 Botasov Yes um, and uh, despite it, the fact that at the moment it's quite close to the sun, very difficult to observe, um, there have been some preliminary observations of it and uh, it appears to be a fairly ordinary comet. It's a bit reddish, it's got a decent uh, coma and tail, they've picked up cyanogen uh, in its atmosphere and uh, it looks very much like a long period comet. It's similar to the sorts of comets that are out now. our alpha cloud that stirred in into water. So it uh, suggests that it may have been an alpha or comet that has been displaced from another solar system and has uh, been travelling through interstellar space to us. There's still a lot of uncertainty around it. Around it. There's, there's the estimates of how big the uh, nucleus is, have ranged from everything from 0.5 of a kilometre to 16 kilometres. But they're sort of narrowing it down, the range around to about between 2 to 6 kilometres. What that means for observation is uncertain. It's not going to come too close to us. So we don't expect to get any brighter than about magnitude 12 or magnitude 11, which is challenging, but is well within the range of any amateur coasts. So uh, the good news for Australians is that uh, the people with the best uh, view of our interstellar visitor are Australians.
0: Fantastic, Ian.
1: Yeah. So uh, at the moment, uh, it's uh, only visible just before astronomical twilight in the morning, and uh, not far from the uh, constellation of Leo and the bright bright star Regulus. So. We've got good signposts to it, but it's a quite dim, uh, 16.6 magnitude at the moment. Again, for uh, amateurs with serious kit, well, that's well within their range. And we can expect to see a, uh, uh, a lot more observations, uh, of the, uh, our interstellar visitor uh, over the coming months. It's going to be bright around about December the 7th. So, and at least high above the horizon. Again, you can only see it with telescopes, but by that time, it should be within the range of amateur uh, uh, telescopes rather than really high-end uh, telescopes.
0: Fantastic. And the latest Hubble picture is very nice indeed.
1: It is indeed. So that's looking very uh, very good. So uh, there's been a lot of speculation about where it's come from and various uh, stars have been bandied without its possible source the one thing we are pretty sure that's come from the direction of the galactic disk rather than the galactic halo. So it's entirely probable that it's coming from a fairly close star within our, uh, our spiral island. So we expect to see more information about this coming up as we, uh, as we uh, get better tracking and better models. Uh, and we looking forward to seeing some more data. We're, we're hoping to see something, something uh, interesting and different. And it'll be really uh, cool if it got a lot brighter than predicted. But as with all of these things, uh, we can prepare to be disappointed. It may turn out to be a lot dimmer and just look like an everyday ordinary comet cloud.
0: Well, it's not looking like it's a cigar shaped one like our last interstellar visitor.
1: No, it's it's definitely behaving like an ordinary everyday comet. And not uh, having mysterious speed ups or slow down <laughs> and uh, to be, to be uh, longer, but that's why. So, in one way, that's a little bit disappointing, but another, it suggests that comets uh, that form around other stars have very similar properties to the comets that form around our stars. So, there's some, some consistency within the universe.
0: Well, thank you very much again dr Ian Astroblog musgrave, another fantastic report, and we'll remind our listeners that you can catch up with Ian on his website, Astroblogger. Just put that into your favorite search engine and it comes up as number one
1: and uh, again this this coming fortnight is going to be a really good sky watching we've got lots of uh, bright planets in the uh evening sky, and we've got the moon climbing the bright planet ladder, so that'll be a really good time to get out and
0: start watching the sky. So get out there and look uppity. Thank you very much, Ian. It's a bit a
1: pleasure. Thank you very much, Brendan, for having
0: me on. Catch you later. See Bye. Here is the News. We have news from the grave. Two years ago, we all watched sadly and triumphantly as Cassini speared into a fiery death into Saturn. And you might want to listen again to episode 43, where we were guests at the NASA tracking station at Tidbinbilla. The news is that the Cassini legacy just keeps on sciencing. There's a new paper in the Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society by Quahaja et al. about a data analysis that revealed that Saturn's moon Enceladus is erupting a plume of gas and ice grains from its south pole. Now, we already knew that, and that these plumes originate in the moon's subsurface global ocean, and plume material travels through cracks in the icy crust and is ejected into space. What's new is that Cassini spacecrafts Iron and Neutral Mass Spectrometer, the INMS, detected volatile gas-phase organic species in the plume. And the Cosmic Dust Analyzer, the CDA, discovered high-mass complex organic material in a small fraction of ice grains. Now, these amines, carbonyls and aromatic compounds could be ideal precursors for organic compounds in the warm depths of Enceladus's ocean. So life on Enceladus, we don't quite know yet, but Cassini's legacy doesn't just live on. It's shouting science very loudly. Stay tuned to Cassini's echoes. There's more to come. Now, in our next episodes, coming up soon, we have a fabulous interview with Amanda Werrett, who is a magnificent storyteller who paints a vivid picture of the dark sky Siding Spring Observatory, its amazing array of research telescopes and instruments, and the researchers and research happening there, high on top of the Warrumbungle Ranges in remote New South Wales in Australia. And the episode after that, we have Steve Olney, the amateur radio astronomer who captured the Vela glitch that we talked about in this episode as it happened. And he did it from his homemade radio telescope in his backyard. This is citizen science writ large and another great episode to look forward to. You can also look forward to our first Are We Alone feature episode with Professor Geraint Lewis and hopefully we'll also have Susie Jackson on the show for you to talk about her work as an engineer on the MRO, ASCAP and the new Norcia Tracking Station. Stay tuned. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio